This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. So let's talk about what's going on down at the waterfront in Sarcoa. This has been an ongoing melodrama, I guess, for a number of years now, ever since these guys took over uh, what was uh, once, uh, well, federal lands, of course, and they built that uh, museum, that waterfront museum down there, uh, which never really took off for anybody anyway. So uh, the Waterfront Trust decided, well, we're going to put a restaurant there, and thus was born Sarcoa. Uh, and thus were born a number of problems that have happened. Well, the uh, bailiff has finally put a, a padlock on here and decided that uh, the place is closed. And there's a, some discrepancy, shall we say, about exactly why it's closed and, and what the long-term plans, even the short-term plans, are going to be. Joining us to talk about this is uh, John Best, uh, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. John's been following this file and the Waterfront Trust for years and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. How are you this morning, John? Just fine, Bill. Uh, I, I'm looking at some of the notices here. Uh, we know this much. It's it's not open right now. We should mention, by the way, that uh, we did uh, uh, talk with uh, Sam Destro, the owner of Sarcoa, just a couple of hours ago, and he uh, he could not come on today. Actually, he's meeting with his lawyer, as we, you and I are talking right now. Uh, he will come on with us next week after we get some clarification from them. Uh, what's going on here, as, as, as much as you can read into this anyway? Well, it, it really stems back to this noise issue, um, Sam and his and his uh, partner Marco Fiazza, when uh, when they went in there, uh, they're, what they're saying is that they made it very clear uh, from the get-go that they there would be uh, live music on the patio, and that their whole business plan was uh, around an upscale patio experience with uh, bottle service and uh, these uh, cabanas with sofas and. You know, it was all, you know, it's a real upscale, kind of a Miami Beach kind of feel. And uh, they were very successful for uh, two or three years. I mean, it it became the kids loved it. They, uh, you see pictures. uh, Well, you forwarded a couple of pictures. I appreciate that. Uh, Just on email a couple of minutes ago, I guess, of the early days. And there are the owners. There's members of the Waterfront Trust, some city councilors. Everybody looks happy, John. What happened? Well, uh, I guess uh, what happened was... uh, the neighbors uh, complained loudly, and as it turned out, very effectively about the noise. You had Herman Turkstra out there with a with an actual sound meter uh, measuring the decibels, and and clearly uh, the the live music amplified live music on the patio was uh, a, a direct violation of the city bylaw, which. Uh, uh, attempts have been made since then to modify it slightly, but the bottom line is it was clearly a violation. And uh, the owners of Sarcoa say, say the city, uh, the Waterfront Trust, fully knew what their intentions were and nonetheless signed them to a lease. And, of course, they poured $4 million into renovations to turn it into what it is, uh, what it was. And uh, those, you know, $4 million worth of uh, renovations are absolutely worthless if it can't operate as a nightclub. And that was one of the first areas of discrepancy. Uh, and, and I know you've talked to Mr. Destro, as I have. And I mean, Sam's been on the show a number of times talking about some of the problems that have gone on here. He maintains, notwithstanding what the city bylaw says, that he was given assurances by the Waterfront Trust who signed him to this deal, don't worry about it. Go ahead and do the music. Everything will be cool. And now they, everybody's denying that. So it's, it's uh, he said, he said, as far as that issue goes anyway. Well, certainly, um, uh, I sent you a couple of pictures that that I obtained, and it's very clear from the pictures. Uh, the one picture you've got 
the two uh, owners and and Werner Plessel of the Waterfront Trust, and they're they're holding their hands up in a kind of a boxing victory kind of a deal. And and you look behind them, and I see a drum kit with a big microphone on it and a Hammond FP4 keyboard. Uh, then there's another shot with uh, with uh, Councillor Tom Jackson addressing the audience and. Uh, he, of course, was a member of the Waterfront Trust. This is opening night, and you look behind Tom, and there's the, the drum kit, two or three guitars. Uh, pretty hard for anybody to say at that point uh, that they didn't know that the, the intention was to do live music. So, I mean, it, it certainly implies that the, that the playing of live music was, was very much sanctioned by the Waterfront Trust uh, uh, at the time that the, the place was opened. In fact, it's obvious that it was. Well, exactly. And and Mr. Destro's uh, assertion is that uh, he was told that there would be an exemption or that it was implied or it's in the... I don't know. I, I've never actually seen the contract. Uh, but, you know, the, you're right. I mean, the bylaw is the bylaw. And uh, he seemed to be under the impression that it wasn't going to apply to him. But that's only one of the issues. The official explanation, is, as you've seen, John, on the door today, if you get down to Sarkoa right now, is for unpaid rent. And again, I, I can tell you this much. Like I can say Mr. Destro didn't want to say too much, uh, and he, but he will next week. They maintain that they are not behind in rent, uh, yet the city or the Waterfront Trust, or whoever's calling the shots here right now, uh, says that it's uh, $226,000 owing in rent. Yeah, I can't really speak to that. That's a, that's a more recent development. I know, I know uh, when I was covering the story a couple of years ago, there, there was some discussion about withholding rent until the, the matter got solved. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot more here, Bill. Um, in, uh, this, this just strikes me as another example of the Waterfront Trust uh, embroiling the city in a mess. Uh, in this instance, uh, I had a, an opportunity to look at the uh, the site plan that was submitted when they did the renovations uh, to the uh, Sarcoa, which included uh, building this uh, stage uh, on the patio. And when you look at the site plan that was submitted to city planning, it's referred to as a bar, uh, no, no reference to the stage. And, of course, as you look at these photos, you can see it's very much a stage. With a look, with a bar in front of it, and um, so I don't know how those. Uh, what I was told by city planning two years ago is, had they known that a bar was going to be placed or that a stage uh, for live music was going to be placed on that patio, that they, they would have raised objections. Um, the other thing is the lease uh, that that was signed uh, was not uh, drafted by city legal. It was drafted by a private lawyer, and, and in the lease, which I had a chance to look at, it, it clearly states that they will be playing live music on the patio. And then there's a second line uh, in the same sentence that says, but local bylaws will be obeyed. Um, so, you know, just in the drafting of that lease, it was clear that somebody knew there might be a problem with noise, uh, you know, and so the, the, the lease, frankly, was drafted with a contradictory uh, fr uh, clause in it. And, you know, just another kind of amateur hour uh, approach, I would say. Here's, here's the thing. That, there's so many different issues here that, that are un boiling under, uh, that, that aren't being addressed, I think, by either side when, when you start looking at some of the statements that have come forward here. But there is something that Mr. Destro told us on the program some months ago, John, that uh, was the first thing that came to my mind when I saw the story yesterday afternoon. Uh, was he maintained at that time, uh, this is when the negotiations were going on, I guess about the noise situation, 
that he thought that there were elements at City Hall that were trying to move him out. Uh, they didn't want him. This is around, you know, this is connecting the dots. This is the same time they were talking about this this fabulous, grandiose plan that they have for Pier 7 and 8. And, you know, you, we, you and I have talked about that, and the city's trying to move forward on that. Uh, uh, That's to the consternation of some of those neighbors down there, too. But Sam at that time, Mr. Destro, said, I, I, I feel as if they're, they're trying to set something up here to basically boot us out of here because they've got something else in mind for this. And uh, so you might say, well, that's a little paranoia. But then I see the statement from uh, the Waterfront Trust uh, in the story that we're carrying this morning here on CHML that indicates that they're going to meet next week to talk about what they're going to do with that property. So it tells me as if they've already made up their mind. Well, there's there's obviously more here than meets the eye, but uh, it's going to be interesting when, when this thing gets to uh, to court, if, if indeed it does get there. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the question that has to be answered is, it was clear that the Waterfront Trust knew and and obviously approved of uh, the live music on the patio. I mean, you can't be standing there doing high fives with a full live music uh, set up behind you and pretend that you were ignorant that these guys intended, you know, it ain't for Andy and Teicher. I mean, it, it was a <laughs> rotten setup, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's going to be a very awkward question. I'm certainly not trying to prejudge what... It, what might happen in court, but we should also mention it's John. Be awkward. You and I, because you cover this on the Bay Observer. Let's go back a little bit just to put some context to this. Uh, when the city took over that property, as I mentioned in the beginning, it used to be the Marine Discovery Center down there, and that was owned by the feds. And as part of that settlement with water lots and everything else, it was vested to the city, and eventually the city got it. I get that. But when they decided, okay, fine, we're not going to maintain the Marine Discovery Center because only about six people ever went to that thing. Uh, they're going to make this a restaurant. They're, they were hardly lining up to be patron. In, in other words, nobody seemed to have interested in this at all. So you, you got to take that into consideration as well. And the Waterfront Trust did not have to go through a pile of applications to, to say who was going to take over that place. Uh, Mr. Destro and his partner came along quite late in the process because, frankly, there was nobody else there. So you got to wonder, okay, what kind of a deal did they cut just to get a tenant in there? Well, um uh, from one of my stories I was just reviewing, uh, the chair of the Waterfront Trust at the time it opened was Bob Charters, and, and he described the project as an entertainment center. And then he said, we're pretty lucky to get these guys to turn the Discovery Center around. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There there, there was not a, a big lineup. And the other piece that, that would factor into this, Bill, is that at that point in 2012, the uh, the Waterfront Trust had really gone on a long string of, of money-losing years, and they were up to about $2 million in losses, accumulated losses, as of 2012. So the idea of getting this, uh, this source of cash, uh, badly needed cash, because the Waterfront Trust is constantly... Um, cutting little deals with the city to manage projects to you know to try to generate a little bit of cash, and this this looks just looked like uh, manna from heaven that uh, you know they were going to get maybe a quarter of a million dollars in uh, in annual rental uh, for a property that they already owned. So it was uh, it was a win win, no question. John, just and I'm asking for conjecture here. I understand that, but I mean you're a journalist and you know you've been studying this. You've been stu- for a long, long time. Uh, right down to the early days of, of waterfront development. Is there any, any credence to what Mr. Destro might be hinting at here, that uh, that the city has just decided, you know, what, we've got bigger plans for this area right now, we don't need you anymore? 
Well, uh, to be honest, I'd be a little surprised because uh, that that particular pier that the uh, that the waterfront uh, or that the uh, Discovery Center uh, Sarcoa is sitting on is uh, is now uh, pretty much recreational. You've got the you've got the skating rink, which is a roller rink in the summer. Um, you know, you've uh, unfortunately the you've got this white elephant of a building, but uh, you know you have the Williams Coffee Pub and um, a number of amenities there. So I'd be a little surprised if there was some kind of a development play that was going to wipe all that out, because frankly, that's uh, one of the big attractions uh, in the area. So I, I I'd be a bit surprised, frankly, Bill, that that particular corner was, uh, unless they're talking just simply about the building itself, where it sits, and and of course it does have. A that, nice that's prime property of, right there. Yeah, and it does have a nice stretch of uh, bayfront uh, uh, footage there. So, who knows? Uh, but I, I have no knowledge of, of any plan of that nature at this point. What's going to happen here? I, I, my understanding from uh, the conversation that uh, that our producer Liz Russell had with uh, Mr. Destro this morning was that, uh, as I say, they're meeting with lawyers. Uh, they're going to uh, have an announcement, and, and and he'll actually come on the show next week and talk about what's going on. Uh, but they maintain that uh, this is another misunderstanding, and they're going to iron this thing out, I guess, and uh, open up again and, and continue business. Uh, the Waterfront Trust's comments seem to indicate that this uh, this chapter's closed. We're moving on. Uh, clearly, there's, there's, uh, there's not appearing to be any middle ground here. Well, and the other problem uh, with the entertainment or the restaurant business is that uh, brand is everything. And uh, the minute you get into a situation where where the place is padlocked, and that that's very damaging to to the brand of any kind of entertainment site. So, I I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Mr. Destro recently. Uh, we I talked to him a lot uh, when this lawsuit was first launched, but uh, it, it's pretty obvious that there's uh, there's a dispute over a large amount of money for rent. Uh, these guys, uh, you know, and and the thing about uh, Sam and his partner, I mean, these are these are not fly-by-night people. They, uh, they you know, Sam uh, operates. Uh, he's one of the largest uh, Imperial Oil uh, operators. Uh, owns many gas stations. He's got significant real estate holdings, as does his partner, who who has a construction business. Um, I think they they got a little bit caught up in the you know the dream of uh, waterfront development and Sam told me um, a long time ago that uh, you know it wasn't just this restaurant and and nightclub that you know ultimately they were hoping to be part of a bigger play in developing uh, th- that that whole waterfront area and it's uh, it's a dream that's uh, just gone horribly sour. Well, but apparently, I mean, those that are suggesting, well, the business may not be doing that well, uh, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, uh, you know, their lawyers are saying that the place was actually doing reasonably well. There's a wedding that was booked for tonight, apparently. I don't know what those poor folks are going to end up doing. Uh, clearly, they're not going to have the wedding there. But uh, uh, yeah, And they talked about this. But when you look at some of the things that are on this, this thing that's posted on the window right now, uh, the notice says Sarkoa has breached the sublease by failing to pay the $226,000 that we talked about, they call that rent arrears, failing to open during the same hours and days as the majority of restaurants in the Golden Horseshoe. I don't know what that means. Uh, well, that means, uh, you know, after uh, they, they went through this whole noise issue and then they tried to operate with, uh, I guess you'd call it a reduced level of noise, uh, which uh, and, and, of course, reduced hours of noise, and, and they'd always maintained that, 
they made, you know, they had their biggest uh, profit time was after 11 p.m. Well, of course, that's exactly the time when people in the neighborhood are are wanting to go to bed, and, and that's when the noise was the most objectionable. So I think they tried to limp along a little bit with, with reduced noise and then ultimately reduced hours and, and sort of seemed to be moving towards uh, more of a, a, a banquet hall type of uh, operation where if there's something going on, it's open, and if there's nothing going on, it's dark. That seemed to be where they were heading, you know, sort of, up until uh, this latest development. Well, everybody, uh, to use that phrase, everybody's lawyering up right now, so we'll have to sit on this for the next couple of days and see what happens. John, thanks as always. Great having you on the program again. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer and Sarkoa. Dark for now, and uh, as I say, we'll talk uh, to the owners next week. They'll be uh, appearing on the program here. We'll try to get some clarity on that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. More than 200 criminal cases uh, across the country have been tossed out due to unreasonable delays. Uh, and, and by the way, we're not just talking about jaywalking or something here. We're talking about murder, sexual assaults, drug trafficking, child luring. Why are these being tossed? What's going on? Let's ask Jeff Manishin, uh, a criminal lawyer, of course, with Ross and McBride, former Crown Attorney. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, great to have you on the program again, Jeff. Thanks so much for the time today. Certainly, Bill. I remember years ago, I think maybe even back to the days when I was on city council, I bumped into you. Uh, I think the uh, attorney general was in town uh, at the courthouse and making an announcement about legal aid or something at the time. And, and and I said, wow, this is great news. And you said, this is a Band-Aid. There's so much more work has to be done. And that's got to be like 10, 12 years ago. And now here we are in a situation like this where all of a sudden these things are getting tossed out. What, what's, what's wrong? Is the system broken? Well, certainly there are flaws, and I would say this. Uh, what the Supreme Court of Canada felt is if you're charged with a, an offense and you want to have your trial at the Ontario Court of Justice, a year and a half should be enough time to get your trial heard. Okay, 18 months should be enough. And if you have a trial in Superior Court, fine, another 12 months. So think of it, though, two and a half years start to finish. That's a reasonable time to get a case done for trial. Mm-hmm. And that's what they basically have said is, and these, the issues of somebody's right to be tried within a reasonable period of time has been under consideration by the Supreme Court of Canada for a couple of decades. It's not new. There have been problems. Years back, you, remember, you may remember the name of a case called Askov. It was a case that the Supreme Court of Canada, basically, they had shorter guidelines. They said cases at the Ontario court, maybe in the range of uh, 10 to 12 months. And so you had a whole bunch of cases. Over 12 months, they were tossed. Then they moderated and they, they modified that and they fine-tuned it and they built in a number of different factors. What was the position of the defense? Did they agree to any of the delay or not? Was the accused bound by strict conditions of bail or in custody? Those sorts of things, complexities of the case, inherent time requirements. That didn't seem to get a result. You still had a lot of cases lagging. So a year ago, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a case called Jordan's, look, enough of this already. Here's what we're doing. Okay, we're not going to make it that complicated. It's going to be 18 months start to finish, and if it's longer than that, the Crown's going to have to explain it. Less than that, the defense is going to have to do some dancing to succeed, to get a case thrown out. And Superior Court, another 12 months. And beyond that, again, Crown will have to explain or not. Well, how did, how did they come up with that number, though, Jeff? That's a terrific question, Bill. My information is that they did not seek the input of all the various counsel who were arguing the case. They didn't it, it, say to the counsel, look, we're thinking of a number, and we want to make it a sort of presumptive beyond this is too long unless... What do you think? What do the statistics say? What can you work with? From what I've heard, they came up with the numbers on their own. 
Now, no. you might say, well, that's not really an evidence-based decision. And if that's the way that they unfolded it, you'd be right. But but these are all people that are, are, are rich in judicial experience. I mean, if they're sitting on on the highest court. So, I okay, granted, let's, let's give them that. But by the same token, if they're going to say 18 months, uh, you know, pick a number, which apparently seems like what they've, they've done here, you would think they say, "Well, here's why it's 18." And and I've never seen in any 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 story I've read about this over the last little while, Jeff, any sort of an explanation as to why it's 18. And a, another way to phrase it, Bill, is if you said, "What was the basis upon which they came up with that number based on, say, statistics, based on yeah, evidence, yeah. based on submissions?" You won't find it because it didn't happen. They just did it. Okay, so that is an issue. But that being said. One, there are a host of different problems and delays and issues in the system, and one of them, and this is, you know, I'm not currently up to date in terms of precise stats, but I know for the last several months, there have been federal, several federal superior court appointments that have been, like, positions that have been vacant. I think Calgary, Alberta has, has got, you know, a couple dozen, and other provinces have had two, and so if you don't have your full judicial complement, and I'm not talking about new spots, I'm talking about filling those that are vacant by retirement, then fill them. Well, if you don't fill them, you're going to have a backlog. If you're going to have a backlog, you're going to have cases taking too long to get through the system. Why, though? That, that, let's, you know, there's so many sidebar issues. I think there were issues about... Because there's, as you know, Jeff, I mean, you've been in the biz a long time. There are no lack of applicants for those jobs. You oh, know that. that's right. I think they had talked, the federal government, I think, had talked about potentially changing the federal appointment process. And there was some issues about who was going to be on the committees and all. But they took a, they have taken a pretty long time to get that in order. Now, in the last few months, I've seen a spate of more appointments. And to the extent of Ontario Court of Justice, too, you know, I think there are, there are vacancies. So that's an issue. You know, I think, too, Bill, there's, there's, you, you could go into a fairly comprehensive review and find a number of different areas for delay. Um, you know, I think that, that uh, prosecutors could potentially be a little more uh, ready to exercise the discretion not to proceed with cases. Um, I think that from the standpoint of some of the material, the length of time it gets, to, it takes to get disclosure out, that could certainly be dealt with more efficiently. But there, there's a host of different issues. But on the other hand, Bill, I would say this: it is still a very real problem. Imagine, think of it: if you're sitting, living with the charge hanging over your head, year and a half should really be enough, shouldn't it? I would you, tell you that the defense bar, when they said 18 months, we'd go, "Well, geez, that's plenty. That's longer than we would have figured." Okay, but you've you've been on the other side of the aisle too, though, Jeff. You spent some time as a crown as well. What kind of pressure does that put on a crown when you see the clock ticking like this? It's uh, huge. And it, actually, is all I, of a sudden I, uh, now lived, you're thinking, "Hey, I got to I got to make a deal here because I don't think this is ever going to get to trial." I I have lived it. Um, some years back, I I took on a special prosecution and uh, got to see from the crown side of things the challenges that when you have requests for disclosure by the defense and they can be fairly voluminous, you're at, you know you have to rely upon the police to get you the material quickly enough. You're at the mercy of the trial coordinators, who's got available court space and scheduling, and ultimately any criticisms in relation to what gets done, it all winds up at the lap of the Crown. So I know Crowns are extremely concerned about living up to their responsibilities and trying to meet the, the deadlines as imposed by the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm gonna, I'd venture to say that there are instances in some places anywhere it's pretty much impossible. And, and by the way, you just touched on something else, too, that gets very little attention when we have this discussion, uh, because the short answer from some people might be, well, just, you know, as you say, point more p- people to the bench, that'll solve it. You, you need physical space, too. I mean, you can, you can appoint 500 more judges next week, but uh, you need court time. I mean, you can't do this in the, in the park. I mean, the, you know, there's the facilities themselves. I mean, there's a myriad of issues here. 
Oh, sure. And in fact, in, in some jurisdictions, you know, I have seen that it seems like they'll, they will have crowns retire and they won't replace them. So you need crown attorney staff, too. But certainly the physical space is an issue. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever been out to the courthouse out in Milton, which they've talked about replacing for years and years. And it's a it's a really bad facility physically. Uh, and, and they don't have enough room. If you go down to Brantford, it's an extremely busy jurisdiction. And they have been understaffed with respect to crown attorneys for some period of time. Uh, they had a couple of them appointed as judges, and it's it's an extremely challenging role for crowns to have to deal with. So certainly resources are part of it, but Bill, I would also say a kind of review of systems might well improve things to uh, uh, potentially more support for crowns who exercise discretion not to proceed with charges would certainly help. Um, I mean, there are, there are a wealth, of, there are a host of different issues, um, but it's not a system that is going to be fixed up that quickly, because I don't know that there's a political will to address it. I really wonder. And so the Supreme Court of Canada wants to say, look, enough already. And, you know, we get enough attention. A variation on the bill. Remember, you know, the judges used to be able to give to Harper, took it away, the credit for time spent in custody. Or yeah, trial. Yeah. And you got that two-for-one credit the judges were giving. Why? Because they wanted to bring to the attention of the government's the inadequacy of the, the you know, the, and the difficulty in terms of the jail resources. And they thought, we'll give extra time, and maybe the government will react. What did they react? The federal government said, we'll give you less credit for the dead time. So judges are frustrated, I'm sure. And the phrase used by the Supreme Court, they used this phrase, a culture of complacency. And they laid it at the feet of counsel, both defense counsel and crowns, as well as the judiciary. I mean, if you go around the province too, Bill, and I've seen it lots, there is a lot of waste of time in terms of court getting started, in terms of things getting done. So could we be more efficient in the way that we run our business? We could. We could. Are you, but within the system, though, Jeff, are you having that discussion about how you can make the system better? I mean, you can't sit here and wait for the government to act on this because this this is not new to this government. This has been going on for years. But at the same time, is there something that the people within the system can do to try to expedite and, and, and streamline the system? I, 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 there have certainly been recommendations that have been put forward. One that I don't agree with, a number of judges said, out of Manitoba, and I think the Attorney General from Ontario said, do away with preliminary hearings. That'll speed it up. Well, I would tell you that we don't have tons and tons of preliminary hearings anyway. I wouldn't say they are a major source of delay. But has there been cons- you know, more consideration given? There has not, as far as I'm aware, Bill, been, say, for example, uh, in the province of Ontario, a committee struck by the Ministry Attorney General to consult with Crown's defense judges and all to be able to say, look, how can we function more efficiently? I know that within the ministry they are looking and they, have, you know, they are examining what they can and can't do differently. But is there something at a national level? No, I don't believe so. I mean, we've had various governments say, you know, that are promising, you know, get tough on crime. We're gonna and all this stuff. We've had those discussions, Jeff, over the last number of years. But it's it's all rhetoric if those very same governments don't understand that they have to have the system that's going to be able to accommodate uh, the, the 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 justice system here. And we just don't seem to have that in this country right now. Well, the other way to phrase it, too, Bill, is uh, as you mentioned, if you have more cases with mandatory minimum sentences, then you get more people that are going to want to fight the cases. Because they can't, they don't want to, you know, get get those uh, significant sentences. I mean, one that concerned me and uh, Harper government did away with it was conditional sentences for property offenses, uh, theft over or fraud over. There was a concept of a conditional sentence of house arrest with electronic monitoring and that kind of thing as an option. Where instead of being locked up, you could at least keep working, but you'd be subject to restriction on liberty and took it away. So you may have more cases that are being fought. One initiative that I think has been done out in BC on drinking and driving is to deal with them more administratively rather than through the criminal courts. 
to try and divert cases. Um, I, I think that there's certainly room for an enhanced use of other ways to be able to deal with matters. And I think the federal government will be and, and are in the process of making changes to some of those mandatory minimums, but it's taken a while to get there. Courts have indicated some of them are unconstitutional. But is there, is there ample room for an overhaul of the system to have it function more efficiently? Sure. What you really need is a, is a political will and the resources to be able to do it. And I don't know that that's going to happen. Stay enough murder cases, and maybe somebody will sit up and react and say, gee, I guess we better appoint more judges and do things about this. Well, if, if this number doesn't get people's attention, I'm not sure what will. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So I, I, I do believe that uh, the issue of murder cases, it's not going to be so blanket, and it's not going to be so dire that so many of the appellate courts are going to wind up being stayed. I think those cases are likely going to continue. But a lot of serious cases are going to be, as the phrase is used, prosecutions being stayed. It's uh, it just seems incongruous anyway that, that you know governments say that they want to have a, a, a judicial system like this, but they don't give you guys the tools to do the job properly. Uh, having said that, though, Jeff, uh, as I segue into the next part, you've got to go to court, so I'm going to let yeah. you go at this yeah, stage. I mean, like, uh, you can't be late for that, or you might get the the case tossed out. So I'll let you do that, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks for okay, this. Okay, Bill. Thanks, Jeff Madison, of course, uh, with uh, Ross McBride here in town. Uh, criminal lawyer. And always great to get his perspective on this, too, because, like I say, he's walked both sides of this. He was also a Crown attorney for some time as well. And uh, the fact that we don't have enough judges, the fact that we don't have enough courtroom time. Uh, and by the way, it's not just judges. I mean, anybody who's uh, ever stepped into a courtroom to watch proceedings uh, can tell you that there's support staff within a, a, a trial situation in a courtroom. Uh, we're talking about clerks, we're talking about Crown attorneys and their staffs, of course, and on and on it goes. And uh, we're told that there's problems and understaffing in just about every one of those uh, areas, uh, which all leads to these numbers that we just talked about here. And like you say, it's a political thing. It's not the courts. Don't blame judges. Don't blame, well, that crown, they shouldn't have cut a deal. Sometimes it's either that or the guy walks or the individual. The, the individual who's charged may just walk out of the courtroom. A lot of pressure on the system right now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. All eyes are on uh, Germany, in Hamburg, Germany, more specifically, as the G20 summit gets underway. Uh, I know they assembled there over the last couple of days uh, for photo ops and some uh, private meetings uh, and one-on-one meetings, but uh, they're going to try to get their agenda going today. Uh, there have been protests, of course. There's always protests during the G20 summits. Uh, where the meetings are taking place. So what are they going to accomplish? Uh, what are they going to walk out of here and say, hey, I'm glad we met because we've done this? Anything at all, really? Joining us to talk about this is Stephen Sademan, uh, who is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, uh, and always a welcome guest here on CHML. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the setup for what's going on here in Munich right now. And uh, when you compare this to some of the past G20s, uh, if, if we just look back and and the highlights of those, I, 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 I'm hard-pressed, Stephen, to say, boy, that was a pretty productive G20 back in whatever year that was. But we certainly remember the protests, uh, which always seem to supersede anything if, if that, that gets accomplished in this, which, which begs the question, are these really fruitful exercises? It varies from uh, G20 to G20. Sometimes they have some resolutions. Sometimes they develop uh, policies. Sometimes they endorse things that are agreed to ahead of time. And sometimes they have a variety of sidebar conversations that are productive. Uh, Yes, the protests always crowd out the rest of the news, but 
it, it sometimes makes sense for these kind of, these leaders to get together to try to figure out uh, how to deal with some common problems. Yeah, and I understand obviously that you know the media's got the cameras trained on that. I mean, are you going to sit there and and watch uh, you know Mr. Macron and Mr. Trudeau shake hands, or do you want to see somebody throwing uh, smoke bombs at, at a crowd? I, I get that as far as as the news coverage is concerned on that. But but from a substance standpoint, uh, let's talk about what they're going to be talking about today. Uh, the main topics that, uh, and among many of them, uh, is going to be terrorism. Of course, they're going to try to talk about trade and about uh, climate. Terrorism, I would think, Stephen, there's there's probably pretty general consensus, I would think, among the G20 about what they need to do and maybe what they want to do. Yes, I, of all the issues, that's the one they probably will come closest to. Because remember, the G20 are, are a bunch of different countries, includes China and Russia. So it's not exactly a club of countries that see eye to eye, even when the United States is not led by somebody like Donald Trump. And so the question is how to deal with ISIS now, given that uh, Mosul has nearly fallen, that, that uh, ISIS is on the back uh, backpedaling in, in Syria, because all these raise difficult questions about what to do next. And I, that's the thing is I'm not sure what they will decide to do, because... Uh, the Russians will prefer to support Assad. Uh, the Americans used to prefer not to support Assad and uh, support opponents to Assad. And so it's not entirely clear what they're going to agree to about terrorism besides maybe you know technical uh, cooperation to share information and to share uh, schemes about how to uh, sift through and make sure that terrorists don't can't move their money or can't move across borders. Well, and therein lies part of the problem, as you mentioned, especially, for instance, from the U.S. and, and Russian standpoints. Uh, are we on the same side about fighting ISIS? Yes, we are, certainly are, but it's it's methodology, isn't it? I mean, because let's face it, for the last few years now, there's been, I, I think, some legitimate questions about what the Russians' intentions are in Syria. You know, they, they went in there with the intention of fighting ISIS, but at the same time, uh, you know, you, you have to question whether or not what the alternative might be here is that they are actually just trying to support Assad in his fight against ISIS to maintain his his grip of power in that country, which, as you say, was contrary to the U.S. position before. Do we know the U.S. position now? Uh, we never really know what the U.S. position now until Donald Trump tweets it. So <laughs> it, it's going to be hard to tell because there's been some talk of some sort of grand compromise uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, and, and Trump has made noises about uh, Assad not being so bad, and we've had mixed signals from his Secretary of State Tillerson on this. So it's really hard to say what's going to emerge out of this because uh, it's it's really uncertain about what Trump believes or supports or, or whether he'll get manipulated by Putin when they meet today. Uh, we really have no idea what's going to come out of that conversation. What about the, the other two issues? And, and again, I don't want people to get the impression there's only going to be three things discussed there, but I mean trade and, and 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 uh, what's going to be happening in other events? Are, are obviously, up here, trade. It, it, take, when you look at what the dynamic here, and, and I know that the prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, I went over there early and had some meetings. Uh, he's he's got his agenda, obviously, and part of that is the Canada-European Union trade deal, uh, which he'd like to see accelerated and signed and, and put into place. Uh, so he's having his discussions about that. But obviously, Brexit is going to be a key factor in this as well. Uh, the chances of everybody being on the same page when it comes to international trade seem pretty slim at this stage. Oh, they're even less than slim because Trump's statements about trade are very hostile to trade. Uh, he sees what used to be America's partners as competitors, and so he's unlikely to want to make any kind of deals with them unless they can have trade. You know, they were currently a lot of them have trade surpluses with the United States. He wants them to not have trade surpluses, which would require a lot of change. 
So what we're seeing is the other countries in the world working around the United States. So at the very start of this meeting, there was announced uh, a European Union-Japan trade agreement, which is another way of circumventing the United States. Well, if Japan can't get uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, signed, and if, if Europe can't get any kind of deals in the United States, then they can sign agreements with each other, which actually put the United States at a competitive disadvantage because now the Europeans and the Japanese are trading uh, with fewer barriers. So you've got that. You've got, uh, and, and the prime minister actually made that comment uh, when he said this was an actual a great opportunity for nations like Japan and Canada and others uh, to strike some of those deals because he said other nations, and he, he specifically talked about uh, the UK and America are looking inward right now. Uh, which which causes another question or two, I guess, uh, at this point, Stephen, about the dynamic of of the individuals that are involved in this summit, uh, and 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 the body language and the intent that they have here. Uh, this is not a love in. I mean, you know, let's face it. Angela Merkel is is really in charge of this. This is on her home turf. Uh, she and Trump have a history, and it's not a pleasant one. Uh, she reiterated just a couple of days ago her statement from a few months ago. That uh, that NATO and and for that matter maybe even the G20 are going to have to learn to get along without the United States and not rely on them anymore, which is a real kind of a smack to Donald Trump. Uh, what about that dynamic and how much of an influence is that going to have on the discussions? Uh, it's going to have a huge influence on the discussions because it used to be that in these large meetings of 20 countries, the United States would work out its basic positions with its closest allies and then try to get everybody else on board. Uh, right now. Trump is alone, and that means that he can't really push his agenda forward very well, and he doesn't really have a team that's very effective at setting the, play, the table for this stuff. They, I mean, they didn't even have a hotel apparently arranged. So uh, Merkel is going to try to push forward her preferences, and, and she got some pushback from Trudeau beforehand because Trudeau doesn't want uh, to slap Donald Trump too heavily in the face. He's trying to work around Trump, trying not to antagonize him. Uh, but uh, Merkel has a domestic audience as well because she's got elections coming up. Mm -hmm. And pretty much everybody in, in Europe uh, and in Canada and everywhere else is facing pressure from their audiences to take a stronger line against Trump because they all see him as a bully, uh, which makes it hard politically for anybody to cozy up to him. Uh, Trudeau has a greater ability to play uh, a smoother, uh, less aggressive game because his, his election is you know two years away. Uh, and we also face higher costs for anything that goes wrong. But Merkel, again, has an election coming up, so she's she's going to be right in Trump's face because this plays well to, to domestic audiences. Well, and, and again, the, the prime minister has to tread lightly, you would think, in situations like this. As you mentioned, they can have all the discussion they want about international trade, but uh, but if he starts to lambaste uh, Trump, uh, he's got to pay those consequences, you would think he would anyway, when the NAFTA negotiations open up in just a few weeks, we guess. Yeah, I, I, we really don't know what's going to come out of that, uh, so we'll see. Yeah, okay. but the, but I mean, they, they are not uh, you know separate and apart issues. I mean, this uh, Trump seems to be as certainly has given us every indication uh, that uh, that he makes it personal when it comes to policy and politics. Oftentimes, and if there's a world leader who disses him, you got to think that that's going to have some sort of an impact on what's going to happen with the negotiations over here when they get home. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, the problem with Trump is that he's not a professional. He's an amateur, and he reacts temperamentally to anything that happens. And so the Trudeau government has done a pretty good job, actually, probably better than anybody could have expected, to try to work with and around Trump. Uh, and Merkel doesn't have the same kind of constraints as the different kinds of interests. So 
the real question is whether Trudeau can keep on playing this game because he's going to face cross pressures from pretty much everybody else in the world uh, to, to take more harder line against Trump. Uh, but again, the good news for Trudeau is he's got a majority government. He's got two more years, uh, and there's not much that he, you know, the NDP can't push him to, to be more strident, and the conservatives aren't going to do that either. So, uh, so Trudeau has a lot, a lot more flexibility to to handle this uh, this current situation. What's the G20 going to look like going forward, though, and and for that matter, NATO to to I think the same extent, Stephen, uh, without the U.S. as the big dog as it has been really since the uh, the inception of those organizations. They, as you said, they not only set the agenda. Oftentimes, they were they were the ones that pretty much set the trends and said, "This is where we're going to go," and everybody else tended to follow. There'd be some detractors, obviously, but more often than not, it was still U.S. policy that uh, that superseded just about everything else. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I can't think of one ally in the G20 right now that's uh, that's sidling up to, to Donald Trump and saying, "Yeah, I'm 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 with you. I got your back on this stuff." Uh, well, we'll see what Putin has to say le- today, but I mean. Uh, you know, Macron and, and Merkel and obviously even Prime Minister Trudeau uh, are, are distancing themselves from this guy. And uh, and the U.S. is just not going to have the same sort of influence or power that it once did. Yes, this is uh, historic that a world leader would just decide to throw away its its leadership of the, of, of the world, of, of, of its allies. Uh, it's very, very strange. Uh, and it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't Donald Trump. It would, if Hillary Clinton was president or if any, almost any other Republicans would were competing last year, were in power, this wouldn't be happening. But Donald Trump uh, is not so much an isolationist, but a unilateralist. He just wants to impose his own views on the world without working through and without cooperating with other countries. And that's just not how the game is played. And so I worry more about NATO than the G20, because as you suggested at the start, the G20 is not quite as effective as an institution. It's not quite as meaningful. But I worry about the future of NATO, because everything in NATO hinged on the American commitment to show up when, when it was needed to. And so yesterday, Trump did say Article 5 while on the continent of Europe, which means that you know, attack upon one equals attack upon all, which is about the American commitment to defend Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe from mostly Russia, but whatever else. And But it lacks credibility because he combines that with a deep level of ignorance and disdain for NATO, where he keeps on claiming that NATO is getting, you know, the question of the 2% requirement for defense spending he keeps on confusing that and thinking that NATO gets the money rather than it's a requirement for countries to spend money on their own defenses, which then makes NATO more effective. Uh, so everybody can look at uh, yesterday's statement and, and read what they want from it, but it was not very reassuring to me. Well, and uh, which is the latest in a long list of, of things that Trump has said right now, which uh, lend uh, the, the opinion that he really doesn't seem to have a grasp of what the issues are here. Exactly. He doesn't. He doesn't do his homework, and he stays uh, very, very closely to his previous beliefs, unless somebody, uh, you know, one of his close advisors can manipulate him in one way or another. And that's really disturbing because it's it's not uh, a well-informed uh, set of policies the United States is generating. It's it's whatever Putin, uh, whatever Trump's reacting to. Uh, and right now, he feels much more favorable to Putin than he does to Merkel or to Macron. So that's not good. How's that going to go today, Stephen, the, the, the meeting between the two of them, between Trump and Putin? Uh, I, I know that there have been a number of articles written over the last 48 hours or so that, uh, notwithstanding what Trump says, this may not be the first time those two have met face-to-face. But let's set that aside for a second. But this is going to be a face-to-face meeting with Trump as president and with Putin, of course, uh, running Russia now. 
uh, two alpha males in a situation like this. Uh, there's a lot of speculation as to what's going to be discussed. I'm going to go out on a limb here and figure that Trump's probably not going to chastise Putin for trying to uh, get involved in the U.S. election. I don't think that's probably even going to come up in the conversation. But but what's going to come out of this right now? Somebody has to come out looking like like they're the, the, the top dog here. Well, the problem is, is that there's only going to be six people in the room, two translators, uh, Putin, Trump, and their... Uh, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson and uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for Russia. So we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't know really what's going to be said. And whoever walks out of it is going to say whatever the hell they want to say about it. And there's not going to be any way to know who's to saying what. So you can get two very, very different pictures of of this. Uh, Chances are uh, Putin um, is going to play Trump, and Trump's going to roll over and help get get his belly scratched because... That's what he does when he's with somebody he really admires. He 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 is he bluffs a lot, but he's not really an alpha male. Uh, and so, it's unlikely that anything good is going to come out of this. And all we have to worry we have to worry about what statements does Trump make that that the Russians are going to try to hold the United States to for the next ten or twenty years. Well, we saw that with the, I guess it was not even President Trump at that time because it was pre-election, but when he went with the Mexican president and, uh, and you know, he was pretty, you know, robust and bombastic after the meeting. You know, I demanded this, demanded that, and the Mexican president came out and said, none of that happened. I don't know what he's talking about. So we may get a repeat of that, I would think, with these two. That's right. And the problem is, and there's again, there's only six people in the room, and two of them have almost no foreign policy experience. That would be Trump and Tillerson. And so it's, it's very, very likely that, that Putin is going to walk into this meeting uh, with a plan, with an agenda, which Trump does not have, and try to impose his will on Trump. And uh, I have no idea what's going to play out of this. Anybody tells you with certainty what the outcome will be is selling you something because Trump is an uncertainty engine. You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know what he's going to say. And Putin's going to try to manipulate him. So how well that goes, we have no idea. Stephen, the last time that uh, Trump, I guess it was his first international trip, I, you know, when he went to the Middle East and, and then obviously and met with the world leaders, uh, it did not go well. I mean, he thought it did, obviously, and, and, and a lot of his supporters and Fox News thought it was just a wonderful trip, but he was chastised uh, at home and abroad, uh, and, and basically some people pointed at him as a laughingstock right now. Is, is this an, an attempt, or is there going to be an attempt here in the, during this meeting, this G20, to, to, to try to allay some of those concerns? Um, and is he capable of doing it? Well, that's that's the thing. I don't think he's really capable of doing it. Um, I don't think he's really capable of uh, assuring anyone because his word means nothing. He's even said that himself that that his word means nothing. So what does that leave you with? Uh, all we have to do is is wait and see. But I, I just don't see him making any kind of credible stances that can assure anybody that he's going to be doing anything. Uh, that's particularly uh, productive over the next three years. These are strange times indeed. Stephen, thank you so much for the time today. It's great talking with you, and uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Stephen Sabman, of course, uh, Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.